Let me invite you to open God's Word with me this morning to the book of Revelation. We turn to this text under a different message series titled, Warnings and Witnesses, a title especially fitting for chapters 8 through 11. So I invite you to look at God's Word with me today, and if you don't have a Bible, certainly would encourage you to use a pew Bible and find this text on page 995. But uh, as you open your Bibles uh, to this portion of God's Word. Let me remind us this morning that uh, Revelation is part of a unique literary genre. It's a different type of literature. And so that being the case, we don't read it just like we would read a history book. We don't even read it just like we would read one of the gospel accounts. As apocalyptic writing, uh, we, read, we, we best engage it by reading it uh, from general to specific. Uh, taking in the big picture before we begin to press into some of uh, the details. In other words, we need to see the contour of the forest before we begin trying to identify individual trees. Uh, but Revelation is a collection of visions. It was given to John, the disciple, uh, to share with the church, meant to encourage and instruct the church to live and follow Jesus Christ faithfully in a world uh, that most often rejects and even opposes Jesus Christ. So I have to say, our text for this morning is probably going to feel rather foreign and strange, like much of this book. It's going to be a bit different, a bit out there. And I told uh, the early uh, crowd, if you get bored, if you begin to sort of check out or get sleepy in today's message, let me just encourage you to look back down at the text and begin rereading these verses, because you can't read this stuff and simply check out. It is, uh, it is wild. In fact, I'll even issue the same uh, invitation to you, to the one who uh, brings the best depiction of what we see in Revelation chapter 9, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, I'll award a prize. And so for you uh, artists out there, you uh, the graphic sort of folks, and uh, work on that. You'll, you'll have more than uh, you can deal with for quite some time. But no doubt, a text like this begins to raise a number of, of questions. Now, we're not going to be able to press into all those. We're not going to be able to dive into and dissect all of those. And I'll be honest, I'm not really sure... Uh, that we're meant to. Uh, we want to take in the vision. We want to take in the, the full picture uh, and uh, discern timeless truths that are consistent with all of God's Word that we can hang our hat on, that we can live by as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we open uh, God's Word, let's, let's look at the big picture. Let's see the picture. Uh, let's hear the message. And let's apply God's truth. So as you find your place in this text, uh, let me invite you to join me standing, whether in body or spirit, for the reading of God's Word. This is a a lengthy text, chapters 8 and 9 we're going to deal with this morning, so I'm not going to read that all at once. We'll read the first 12 verses uh, this time. But uh, the Word of God says, John writes, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. 
The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning seeking you. We need to hear from you. We need you. We pray that you would speak to us now, the presence and power of your spirit through your word, Lord, that you would clarify. And Lord, that you would confront and convict and challenge us and call us to faithfully trust in you and follow you. Lord, guide us now. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. As I shared a moment ago, Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to press on. We're going to read all the way through chapter Nine this morning, but uh, this is a good place to stop and sort of catch our breath and try to begin to make sense of some of what we're reading here. We've been in the book of Revelation for several uh, weeks now, and uh, if you've been following the flow of the book, uh, remember that it begins in chapter 1 with this exalted vision of Jesus Christ, emphasizing His power and His glory and His wisdom. And then He instructs John, uh, the human author of this text, the disciple An apostle, a follower of Jesus Christ, he instructs John to write down messages, letters to seven churches in the province of Asia, calling them to persevere in the faith. For by so doing, they'll be victorious. And you may remember uh, in each of those seven letters, they finish uh, with something like, to him who uh, is victorious, I will do this. Or to him who overcomes, uh, I will do, do this. And following those seven letters in chapters 2 and chapter 3, we have a two-part heavenly throne room scene, which David just read a portion in chapters 4 and 5, that focuses all of heaven's worship on God and the Lamb who is on the throne. We come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 records what happens as the Lamb begins to open the seven seals that are on God's scroll. God's judgment begins to be unleashed on the wicked, while the righteous also suffer. The righteous, it's emphasized, are not suffering as a result of of God's judgment upon them, but as evidence of God's condemnation of the wicked and uh, to prove His people's faithfulness as they prepare to enter God's presence. And last week, we came to chapter 7. Chapter 7 was certainly a brush of fresh air, a pause, a delay, an interlude. A break before the seventh seal is opened, portraying God's multi-ethnic multitude protected from His wrath and gathered around His throne, worshiping Him and delighting in Him forever and ever. Chapter 7 was the first of of two, maybe uh, three uh, such interludes in the book of Revelation, emphasizing God's merciful delay of final judgment and depicting the eternal security and satisfaction of his people. So that brings us to our text for today. That brings us to chapter 8. 
In chapter 8, judgment uh, continues as the seventh seal is opened, followed by these trumpets announcing uh, another cycle of God's judgment against the wicked world. The truth is that God will judge those who oppose Him, and He will save those who serve Him. Those who serve Him are secure with Him. And they have a secure future. We have a secure future because the Lamb of God has paid the price of our salvation. The Bible is clear that those who do not serve Him remain lost. Unbelievers remain lost in sin and rebellion. And thus God Almighty unleashes warning judgments, calling sinners to repent and turn to Him before it's too late. And so we read this text. We come to chapter 8. When the seventh seal is open, there's silence in heaven. It reminds me of a high school, high school wreck I had. Uh, during homecoming week of my junior year, uh, I had just turned 16. I had a car full of friends, and it was all my fault. There was no denying that. Another car was coming the opposite way, totally wasn't paying attention, didn't see them, and nailed them head on. Unfortunately, happened in the high school parking lot, and so everyone saw it. Fortunately, it was in the high school parking lot, and so we weren't traveling very fast. But I remember afterward, in the sort of the aftermath of that, the confusion that followed, and just the, the guilt and the, the, the concern about what had happened, I, I called my dad. and waited for my dad to show up, and he shows up, and of course I'm anticipating, that's probably what I'm fearing the most. What's dad going to say? What's he going to do? What, what kind of trouble am I going to be in? And dad shows up, and I'm anticipating what he's going to say, and all he does for uh, a while is come along and stand silently beside me. Claims me, but doesn't have much to say to me. Certainly, there would be plenty of correction that would soon follow, but first, it was silence. We need to remember that when John is is writing this text, he is steeped in the Scriptures. Revelation has allusions to all sorts of Old Testament texts, and in the scriptures, silence precedes the Lord's coming judgment. Here's a couple examples from uh, prophetic books. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. You see, this anticipation of God's coming action, a half hour of silence, meaning not long, not long. God's judgment will not delay long. He tarries for a little while, scriptures tell us, so unbelievers might repent and turn to him, but he will not tarry forever. God acts in judgment. And notice here that God's actions are in response to the prayers of his people. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Church, God has chosen to make the prayers of His people part of His sovereign plan. God has chosen to make the prayers of His people part of His sovereign plan. And we don't fully understand that. He is so sovereign that He can do that. He's chosen to make uh, the prayers of His people part of His sovereign plan. God responds to the prayers of His people. Prayers here that recall the prayers of the martyrs in chapter 6, verse 10. The martyrs cry out to God, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
prayers for God's kingdom to be realized. For the wicked to be judged and the saved to be saved. For God to act on behalf of His people once and for all, making all things right. We need to recognize this scene that's unfolding here, particularly in chapters 8 and 9, is reminiscent of the Exodus. And in particular, the plagues God sent to warn and to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Of course, there, like here, God God knew how this was going to unfold. He knew what was going to happen long before it does, but it began to unfold in Exodus in response to the prayers of His oppressed people. Do you remember that? Descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. They've gone there in a time of famine. Their ancestors have. Joseph has received favor. He's in a position of authority in the land. And yet Joseph dies off. Pharaoh uh, dies. And generations pass. The people multiply greatly, so much so that the Egyptians fear them. And so they oppress them. They enslave them. And in their slavery, Scriptures say, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so God acted. He acted. He judged and He delivered. Listen to one pastor's Uh, reflections on this. James Hamilton writes, he says, the book of Revelation is showing us the ultimate exodus. But this time it is not a mere nation that God is judging, but the wicked world system that is ranged against God and his people. As at the exodus from Egypt, God is going to judge the wicked world and deliver his people in response to their prayers. Let me pause right there and say, friend, whatever, whatever you're facing today, Whatever you may face in the future, whatever suffering or hardship or sickness or oppression, know that God hears the prayers of His people. God has not nor will not forget about you. God hears the cries of His people. And because God has chosen to make the prayers of His people part of His sovereign plan, let's band together for strategic prayer. Let's band together for strategic prayer. Let's pray and let's pray specifically. Let's join in crying out to God. We're commanded, we're called, we're invited to pray. So may we be a people, may we be a church that bands together in prayer before God. This is why we share prayer concerns with each other. This is why we have times of prayer when we come together in small groups. This is why we have a time, a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights at 6 right here. May we be a people of prayer who bend together to intercede on behalf of God's people, knowing that He hears us, He hears our prayers, and that He has chosen to make the prayers of His people part of His sovereign plan. And so what is His plan? What is God's sovereign plan? What, What are these angels and trumpets recounting devastation unleashed by God in response to the prayers of His people Tell us. Well, they tell us that God reigns. That God reigns over all nature and uses it to execute judgment. The Bible is clear on this. That God reigns over, He reigns over all nature and uses it to execute judgment. We were reminded this last week on Tuesday, we, we don't reign over nature. We get it wrong. Even the best meteorologists with their 
uh, radars and satellites, it still cannot always predict this. Let's not hold that against them. Most often, they're right. But even when they're right, even when we're right, we have no control over these things. We can simply predict them. God controls it. God does. He has control over it. Hail, fire, mountains moving, famine, the sea turning into blood, a falling star, darkness. These are descriptions of judgments on the earth. You see, the world is broken because of sin. It's in chaos because of sin. Terrible things happen in the world because of human sin. Tsunamis and wildfires, tornadoes, hurricanes, diseases, all of these happen as a result ultimately of God's judgment against sin. Living in a fallen world. And they are meant to catch the world's attention. They're meant to catch our attention and cause us to turn to Him. Like trumpet blasts, they herald the sovereignty of the Most High God. Doug Webster writes, he says, The purpose of these trumpet blasts is not to give a literal description of coming natural disasters. The purpose of the trumpets is to announce God's judgment against evil, calling for repentance. He goes on, he says, The blare of the trumpet is like a car alarm in the middle of the night, or the piercing alert of a smoke alarm. To be to a hard-hearted, hard-of-hearing humanity, God announces judgment. The whole created order is in peril, and we are put on notice. Figurative descriptions, I think, of very real and literal judgments, saying, in essence, everything you have learned to rely on and depend on other than God is going to disintegrate. It will not last. It will be destroyed. A message that's consistent with all of Scripture. A message that's consistent uh, with uh, Scriptures all the way back to the beginning, taking us all the way back to Genesis and the flood. Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, followed by the plagues on Egypt, the trumpets announcing God's judgment on Jericho, the conquering of the Canaanites, God's use of the Assyrians and Babylonians. And even contrary to popular opinion, the words of our beloved Jesus Christ who warned us again and again and again about God's coming judgment upon sinners. James Hamilton writes, If you think God is overreacting, Your view of God is too small. The scope of this devastation is meant to show us how great God is. The fury of this wrath is meant to declare how serious God is about His Word. You see, God's judgments warn a hard Pharaoh. They warn a proud Domitian. They warn an idolatrous Roman Empire, but they also warn a nation practicing and celebrating mass murder in the womb. This righteous standard and coming judgments warn a people producing and supporting a multi-billion dollar pornography industry. His judgments warn sinners in a land filled with sovereign selves intent on ordering our own private universe, doing whatever feels right in our own eyes. Friends, may we humble ourselves. May we humble ourselves before the living God, a God who reigns over all nature and uses it to execute judgment and to grab our attention. The truth is, as we return to the Word, we return to God's Word, the seriousness and the severity of the trumpet judgments only increases. It only goes up from here. Let's look back at the text. Revelation chapter 8, picking up in verse 13. 
John says, as I I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Verse 7, the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's teeth, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Imagine this picture. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. In their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. John says the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Verse 13, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. I'm not making this up. It's in God's word. And whereas the first four trumpets announced God's rule over all creation and his use of nature to execute judgment, these next two trumpets depict God's sovereignty over every army, both human and demonic. And God reigns over all armies and uses them to execute judgment. He reigns over all armies and uses them to execute judgment. Chapter 9 is filled with descriptions and metaphors that point to Satan and his armies. Demonic agents of the devil and his chief lieutenants bent on absolute destruction. Scholars often point out as they read this chapter that there's allusions here to Rome's most feared enemy in that day, the Parthians to the east. People across the Euphrates River. Rome had great success in battle. They expanded their kingdom in all directions except to the east. They feared the Parthians. Parthians who were described uh, as an army of mounted troops whose archers had perfected the art of riding forward while shooting backward. Chaos and evil portrayed here by the merging of demonic and human armies. 
Certainly, as we read a text like this, as we read all of uh, this portion of God's Word, I, I want to major on the majors and minor on the minors, but I, I don't think John is trying to describe cruise miss- missiles and, and nuclear war as some have imagined. If so, that's, that's sure. Whatever the case, those are appropriate images. Pro- appropriate uh, images of, of horror that begin to portray modern equivalents of his intended shock. You see, what's described here was meant to provide a nightmare version of God's pending judgment on the wicked, calling those who do not repent to prepare. A portrait of terrifying monsters executing God's judgment, but even so with limited intensity, verse 6, and limited duration, verse 10. So what's the point? What's the point of such graphic depictions of God's judgment? I think this is it. To warn sinners to repent. To call the church first to be steadfast. This is a message to the church. Given to, to call the church to be faithful, to be steadfast. To trust in the sovereign one who is on the throne. Who has all of this in his hands. To trust him. And then to warn the world. About his character. And about coming judgment. You see, God's judgments call sinners to repentance. God's judgments call sinners to repentance. This is where the text ends. Where this portion of the vision ends. In verse 20 of chapter 9. John says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons And idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You see, God's judgments. Executed through nature and armies throughout history. But increasingly so as we approach the return of Jesus Christ. Are meant to warn the world to repent. Repent before the return of the King. And yet the reality is, as with Pharaoh in Egypt, by and large, sinners do not heed the warning and repent. Apostle Paul reflected on God's judgments throughout history. He reflected on God's judgments, various judgments in history upon Israel. And he, he said this about them, about their purpose in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and following. Paul writes, he said, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Friends, warnings from past eras calling sinners to heed God's warnings and repent. See, I think these two chapters portray two types of people. Those who recognize the greatness of God and humbly cry out for Him to help them and those who remain hard-hearted against Him 
and run from his wrath. Which one are you? Which camp are you in? You humbly bowing before God, crying out for him to help you, to heal you, to restore you, to make all things right for his kingdom to, to come on earth as it is in heaven? Or are you running from him? You see, God answers cries for help by judging the world. God answers cries for help by, by judging the world. We, we know that we live in a broken world. A world tainted by sin. A world full of, of evil. And we know that we serve a God who is making all things new. In whose kingdom there will be no sin and, and suffering. And we cry out to Him for help. He hears our cries for help and He answers cries for help by judging the world. His judgment is coming and His judgment will ultimately rid His kingdom of sin and suffering Friend, are you suffering? Cry out to God to help you. Are you sinning? Cry out for the Savior to save you. Cry out and ask God to save you. This text is, in the words of one writer, a glimpse of the wrath from which those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's good news. Reminding us believers that the gospel of Jesus is the good news that the infinitely holy person who should take action against us has taken action for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God saves and secures those who return to him. Thus, we must turn to him. We must repent. Repent of idolatry and immorality. Repent. Repent of sin. Repent of whatever comes between you and God. Who, who are you worshiping? Who calls the shots in your life? Where are you compromising? What sin are you holding on to today? Give it up. Repent. The surest sign that you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, may be your willingness to repent. Repent. And run after Jesus Christ. Run after Christ. Friends, let's run to the Lamb of God who gave His life for us. Run to the true Passover Lamb whose blood spares you, providing the ultimate exodus through freedom from and forgiveness for your sins. Run to Him. Follow Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Find your greatest treasure and delight in knowing Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews helps us here calls us here, instructs us here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. That's the call of Revelation. Author of Hebrews, ultimately, and the author of Revelation are saying the same thing. And shouldn't we expect that? Saying, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friend, Jesus endured the cross. Endure the cross for you and for me and for all who will turn to him. But for those who do not, God's judgment awaits. Thus, church, we must, we must, we must tell the gospel truth. Tell the gospel truth. Don't shrink from the truth. We must 
tell the gospel truth. We've been entrusted with the truth. I was driving on 280 just the other day, and I noticed a, a bumper sticker that read, Stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell. I'm not sure that's the best way to do it, but if that, if that's you, the Spirit of God has led you to witness in that way, then so be it. But in any event, whatever the case, our task, church, is to warn the world of sin and judgment as we rejoice in God's saving grace, grace that He has so freely offered to you and to me. Let's pray that God would break our hearts for the lost. Let's pray that He would break our hearts for the lost enough that He would cause us to love people enough to tell them the truth. Let's tell the gospel truth. I'm going to conclude with some other words from a friend and mentor of mine, Doug Webster writes. He says, if, if God's wrath and the consequences of evil are imaginary, if there is no final judgment day, if there is no hell, then Christians have no reason to shout fire. But if the house is burning and danger is imminent, then Christ's love motivates believers to rescue the perish, perishing and to care for the dying. He says, John shouts doom and danger at the top of his lungs with his spirit-inspired vision, but against all reason, many refuse to get out of the burning building. Friend, are you in the burning building? Or are your feet on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Who, who do you know that's in the burning building? Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to tell about the overwhelming love of God and grace of a Savior who would take God's wrath for us so we don't have to? And Father, may we take the words of your gospel to heart. Lord, may we not be part of a culture in a day that denies any judgment and wrath, that, that reacts against any notion of authority. But Lord, may we be a people who humbly bow before you and submit to your word. Father, correct us where we're wrong. Humble us where we're proud. Convict us where we're in error. And draw us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we honor you. May we bow before the Lamb. May we follow the Lamb. May we tell others about your goodness and your mercy and your patience and your grace. Father, we thank you for these things in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.